0: Revisiting Indian Culture and Teachings of Global Indian Thinkers in Times of Pandemics Part 1. Message of the Rishi Chapter 2. The Knots that Tie Us Down You know, there is a subtle essence which you do not perceive through that essence, the truly immense banyan tree exists. Everything that exists has itself in that subtle essence. It is truth, it is the self, and you are that. Clinging to life, the ultimate knot. Resolve all conflicts before you go, are the parting thoughts of many who come to rent out a room in this lodge where they await their appointment with death, says Bhairavnath, the caretaker. Bhairavnath has assisted thousands of people to pass over without a struggle, as if it were a homecoming. To know you're going to die shortly and to wait quietly in anticipation, it's not a small thing. An old man calls up his estranged brother and asks him to bring down the wall that divides their homes. And come to Kashi, I want to see you before I go. The brother comes, they hug shed some tears, and in the midst of it all, he moves on. In Kashi, the word love, which means profit in our daily parlance, is slang for liberation from the clinging to life. In yoga, this clinging to life is called abhinivesha considered to be the most difficult of the knots to unravel. Now, we can see the significance of the word Shad in Upanishad, which means to break that knot. Initiation by fire After Rishi Vishwamitra had spelt out his punishment, Raja Harishchandra came to Kashi with wife and child. Among the many conditions the sage had laid out, one was that he gives him 100 gold coins that he had to earn. Dressed in coarse cotton without an identity, how would he earn 100 gold coins in a month? A whole lifetime of hard labor might help him save maybe 10. There was only one way. He climbed on a pedestal at a busy crossroad in the marketplace and announced he was up for sale. Who would like to buy? The price was a hundred gold coins. Look at me. I'm a strong man. And so he started his pitch. Over the course of the entire day, many potential buyers gathered. But as the sun set, still They were no takers for Harishchandra. Just when he had given up all hopes, an offer came. It was for the queen. Harishchandra pleaded, No, not her. Please take me. But I need a maid for my wife. She will bear a child soon, said the potential buyer. Harishchandra refused. But he waited. He knew his wife would be pleased with this unusual and rare choice. Just then, a rough voice boomed across the empty market square. Come with me. It was the chief cremator in charge of all the cremation grounds of Kashi, the city of light. But I have no use for that lady and child in the cremation ground. Just then, Harish Chandra saw Rishi Vishwamitra walking briskly towards them. He realised that the deadline to arrange for the hundred gold coins would end in a few minutes at the stroke of midnight. He had no choice but to accept both the offers or refuse the Rishi. He made the deal. You kept your word, said Rishi Vishwamitra. There was no time to bid goodbye to his wife and their son. For his work as a cremator, Harishchandra's earnings were the cloak that covered the dead during their last journey to the cremation ground. As grain, he got a portion of what was offered during the cremation. The rest went to his master and to the royal granary He slept on a straw mat, on the ground, in a straw hut, right in the middle of the cremation ground, one of the oldest and the busiest in Kashi and in the world. His work was 24 by 7. It was common for many pyres to burn at the same time here. Harish Chandra, conscientious to a fault, never refused or delayed, or delegated a single cremation. Ignoring pangs of hunger, sleep, rain or harsh sunshine, he did this job without a pause. Even as a cremator in Kashi, he was ever the warrior, now serving in death as he had once served his people in life. Was this a living hell? or? Was this simply an answer to the call of a man who was being the lord of all that he surveyed but had not paused even once to enjoy his lordship and instead asked, what next? Bharam the caretaker of the lodge, quotes from his book of Dying. Once you are able to see your life as something your perishable body has experienced and not you, You glimpse the imperishable. So choose wisely what you want to learn. For one day, you might have regrets. Nobel laureate Fritz Heiberg should have heard these words. The man who made bread out of thin air. 1918 was the year of one of the most devastating pandemics in recent history. Over 50 million people are said to have died of influenza. It was also the year the German scientist Fritz Heiber was awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for developing a method for synthesizing ammonia from nitrogen in the air. Nitrogen is a fundamental ingredient of all organic life. Since the 1800s, it was known that its abundance in the soil would increase agricultural yields significantly. Nitrogen makes for 80% of the air we breathe. The problem was that scientists were finding it impossible to extract it. Such was its molecular structure. Hyber found a way to break the seemingly unbreakable chemical bonds of nitrogen and extract ammonia literally out of thin air. With this invention, we enter the age of food surplus in modern times. Some people at the time had said, thanks to Hyber, this invention is going to stop wars. It will feed all the hungry children of the world. It will usher in a golden age for entire humanity. Well, that's what they said. Maybe because they had to justify giving Hyber the Nobel, because Hyber was also being severely criticized for another reason around this time, which was exactly the opposite of a life giving invention. A dynamite for peace. Haiber wanted to serve his country in war as a scientist. Maybe he wanted the glory, the fame, and the power. He created and deployed a chemical bomb filled with chlorine gas. 6,000 Allied troops are said to have died without a single gunshot being fired. Hyber was abhorred for this, and he is said to have become an outcast in the European scientific community. Yet. In the coming decades, practically the who's who of the 20th century scientists would join hands to create a far deadlier bomb, the atom bomb. The Nobel Prize that Hyber won was ironically instituted just a few years back by the very man who invented this new bomb material called dynamite, the Swedish scientist, inventor, and businessman Alfred Nobel. This invention would help in making large public projects possible in a short time. But at the same time, with dynamite, it was now possible to wage bigger, more brutal wars. In a very short while, Alfred Nobel had amassed a huge fortune. But when Nobel died, his will contained a great surprise. He had left the bulk of his wealth in a trust which would award annually those people who served humanity with distinction in the previous year. Why Nobel instituted this prize was because many years back his brother had died in an explosion in one of their 90-odd armament factories. A news reporter had thought that it was Alfred Nobel himself who had died. And the next day's headlines in the papers read, The Merchant of Death, is dead. For Nobel, reading his own obituary in the press was a surreal experience. He instituted the Peace Prize and other prizes as a reaction to this, so that now he would be remembered not as the merchant of death, but as an angel of peace. The scientist goes to war. How would our lives have been without the chemical fertilizer? Every morsel of food and drop of groundwater would have been free of chemicals. And it is estimated, with less food available, the world population would be less than half of what it is today. Wouldn't that have been perfect? But then, if not hyber, someone else would have done it. Because within just three decades of the chemical bomb, the atom bombs were developed. 200,000 people perished when it was deployed. Yet, in terms of scale, this figure was nothing compared to the 3 million people who died in a famine in the British-ruled Indian state of Bengal in the same World War II period in 1943. And these were mostly peasants who had nothing to do with the war. Shatijit Jitrai, the great Indian filmmaker, made the film Ashani Shankit, The Distant Thunder, that told the tragic story of the Bengal famine of 1943. He says in an interview, It was a year of normal rainfall and the harvest was good. And yet... People in the tens of thousands had come from villages out of hunger to Calcutta, only to die on its streets. He says daily he had to walk across bodies in front of his gate as he left for work. Far from eradicating starvation and ushering peace, modern science and war seem to be one twisted, intricate, tangled and messy knot how and why did this not get tied? Limited liability, great profits. From around the 1500s, the Portuguese had began to gain immensely in wealth through conquering parts of India. The British wanted a piece of the pie too. And to raise money for their navies and armies, they came up with a novel plan. They said they would use equity subscriptions to raise capital for specific voyages to their territories. The great innovation here was that the investors enjoyed limited liability. That is, should the company fail or get into debt, only the company's assets would be at risk. The directors would be protected from being prosecuted. This company was called a Limited Liability Company, the parent of the corporations of today. The first LLC in history was British East India Company. The company did not need a large scale of capital just to trade. They needed it to overwhelm, dominate and control resources. The cost of capital was high, The risk was high, and so the investors needed the waiver of liability that the LLC would provide, and in return, they would direct the executives of the company to do all it took to ensure that returns justified the risk, and for that, they gave them practically unlimited powers over the land and lives they would preside upon.